This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Welcome to Late Boomers. I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Today on Late Boomers, we're talking to Stuart L. Morris, a man with nine lives, entrepreneur, business coach, podcast host, pilot, United Kingdom magistrate, teacher, lecturer, and founder and director of the Institute of Professional Celebrants. We're delighted to have you on our podcast. And he's coming to us all the way from London. Say hello to our listeners, Stuart. Hey, guys. Well, I'm going to say good evening, but I know that for, for you over there, it's, it's still relatively early in the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is. We want to talk to you about your work with the Institute of Professional Celebrants, and we understand you've recently launched uh, the company in the United States. But first, we'd like to ask you how you started on your multi-career path. <laughs> I think the um, the secret there is being hyperactive and unable to sit still and focus on a single thing. Uh, so my <laughs> career is that there has been no plan. There's been no, I think I'll go here next. It's just, oh, that looks interesting. Or as my wife puts it, squirrel. And, <laughs> uh, and then off I've gone. And sometimes some of the changes have been forced on me by circumstances. Some of them being forced on me by health issues. And some of them are just, oh, that looks interesting. That looks fun. I think I could make a living out of that. And and off I go. But primarily, it's it's usually driven by where is the most joy. Uh, So I I grew up a geek. Um, I was one of the the first kids at my school to to use a computer and to learn how to write code. Uh, And then I went to university and studied cybernetics, you know, one of the most geeky subjects of computing, electronics, robotics, AI. And this, bear in mind, is, is in the, the late 80s when stuff like this was very much in its infancy, really. And then went on with a career with Hewlett Packard for a few years, which I loved, got into internet security, and then moved into a couple of smaller businesses before starting my own. IT business, which was terrific fun. It had its ups, its downs, it paid the bills. So it kind of been all bad. And uh, then uh, through that, ended up uh, the technical director of a satellite TV company here in, in Europe, uh, because, hey, why, why not? Uh, and after that, I was invited to help set up a business in a country called Moldova. Moldova is uh, used to be part of the Soviet Union. It's now a small uh, country, smaller than most US states, population of about four and a half million people. 
And when it declared independence from the Soviet Union, uh, the Russians turned the gas, the electricity and the oil off. And pretty much overnight, the whole country went dark. So it went from being you know, a fairly stable part of, of Soviet era uh, USSR to a third world country with very, very little. 98% of the population were subsistence farming, where they had been working quite good jobs in technology. And a group set up this company uh, in Moldova as offshore software development. So we were basically paying them to write software for Western clients. Uh, obviously, it was cheaper to pay them there than to pay US or UK software developers. And uh, to cut a long story short, that company, uh, I was the fourth person in the team, uh, floated on the New York Stock Exchange a couple of years ago and is currently worth about $5.5 So that was a huge success story. But more importantly than the success of the business, which was phenomenal, we actually changed the economic history of a country. We, we helped lift an entire nation out of poverty because today the offshore software development industry in Moldova is 10% of GDP and employs over 40,000 people as, as an industry wow. as a whole. And, and we started it. So that's using entrepreneurship as social good. We never paid bribes, even though that was pretty challenging in, in an environment like that. We always paid our taxes. Actually, funnily enough, in 2003, uh, we had 145 employees and we were paying 4% of all the income tax in the whole of Moldova. So, yeah, oh. you can have a transformative impact uh, with, in an environment like that. After that, uh, the, the guy who founded that and I came up with a, another idea for an internet uh, security product, which we raised a bunch of venture capital for and launched that business in 2006, which was terrific fun. Uh, I was doing between one and 200,000 miles a year on airplanes flying around the world. This was a product for the big banks um, and we had terrific fun doing that until uh, 2008, the financial crisis uh, and the big banks stopped spending money on internet security products. And uh, we were, uh, it was a combination of bad luck and bad timing and getting totally shafted. And uh, so February the 14th, 2009, uh, my first marriage had just split, broken up and I lost uh, close to $30 million in a day uh, when that business <laughs> went bust. That hurts. Hey, it's, just, it's just money. My heart's still beating. Um, oh. And um, <laughs> so then it was time to, to start again, uh, to, to think of what I wanted to do. Uh, I did some consulting, just general consulting for a while. And then uh, the Henley Business School, which is uh, one of the top business schools in the world, uh, attached to a university uh, just up the road from me here, the University of Reading, uh, were looking for a practitioner to teach entrepreneurship. So somebody who'd done it rather than a career academic to come in, join the, the teaching staff and teach students how to start their own businesses. So for four years, uh, I did that. I taught entrepreneurship uh, to PhD level. I traveled, still traveling the world, ran courses for people in Turkey and Hong Kong uh, and all sorts of places to, to help people 
launch businesses. And actually, it's far more fun to teach people how to launch a business in a deprived environment, somewhere like Turkey, where the people we were working with had very, very little, uh, or somewhere like Kazakhstan, where uh, one couple I was working with had their total income from their business for the whole year for that paid for the food and everything they needed for them and their two children was just a little over a thousand dollars a year that was their total income and completely amazing a, yeah with a little bit of work literally in 24 hours we added 30 percent to that family's net income and that was what a good feeling that must give you when you're working with these people amazing when you can do things like that and then when you find out that for that family that was the difference between their kids begging on the street and their kids being in school oh it's the, the radiant value isn't just i helped this couple make more money it's i helped this family change its environment for generations to come because once you've had an education you're more likely to get a better job or you know, have a higher income oh, yes. and that rolls forward so you know those are just a, a couple of examples of some of the, the fun that i had uh in that time and obviously there were other people i helped whose businesses are now worth millions and that's that's also fun um and then 2013, uh, I had a nervous breakdown. There's no, there's no easy way of, of coming at that one. I was under immense pressure in my home life uh, and uh, it just became too much. And I ended up, uh, basically I was driving on my way to take my own life. I had a plan, I was executing that plan. I figured everybody else would be better off if I wasn't around anymore. And um, fortunately, uh, I look back, somebody uh, stopped me, somebody found me just before it was too late. And um, I was nursed and loved back to health. Uh, that took a period of quite some time, uh, over, over a year of therapy and, and counseling. And through all of that, I had lost my faith. And as of the previous, you know, the whole of my adult life, I'd been heavily involved in church life, teaching, preaching, taking funerals, uh, being involved in weddings and that kind of thing. And um, the lady who is now my wife said to me one day, it's like you miss the rites of passage. You know, I was thinking, I don't want to go back into high tech, particularly. It's an industry that once you've been out of it a little while, it's very difficult to get back into and I suddenly realized that yes, the rites of passage was something that I'd always been passionate about as a hobby. How could I make a living out of it? So I became uh, what we call a celebrant or an officiant and built my living out of taking funerals. Who knew it was a thing? So I take something like 170 funerals a year if a family's got church connections, they're likely to have their minister take it. If they've got synagogue connections, then their rabbi will take the funeral. But for everybody else, for the people who don't fit into sort of organized religion, what do you do? So that's where celebrants come in, independent celebrants. I can put together a funeral ceremony that is about celebrating this person's life from start to finish 
not about reading a standard funeral script from the prayer book. Um, and that turned into a truly joyous career. I know that sounds weird, but I get to sit down with families and hear all about the love that they have for their loved one who's, who's passed on and write a ceremony that's, that's custom, that's unique, that's about that person's life and then deliver it to however many people. Uh, and I've discovered that that was an immense joy. But similarly, I can do that with a wedding. Rather than it being a standard sort of cookie cutter wedding, I can create a wedding that's unique to this couple. So, um, for example, at dawn, inside the stone circle at Stonehenge, for couples that want something yeah. crazy like that. Um, my own weddings niche, uh, because aviation is something that I'm passionate about, uh, milehighmatrimony.aero, um, <laughs> I will organize your wedding on an airplane. And uh, that, that can be insanely expensive. Uh, talking, there's one deal that we're talking to a couple at the moment. Uh, there are NDAs in place, so I can't even give you clues. Uh, but their budget for their wedding day is about $10 million. And we will put the whole thing on um, a wide body jumbo over the Atlantic. So all How of the guests. People? It's looking like 150 to 200. Um, wow. Well, I so want to ask you along those lines, not to <laughs> detract from the wedding, but you had mentioned to us that you survived two ultralight plane crashes and were pronounced brain dead. So tell, so, yeah. our, tell our listeners about that and how that experience influenced or changed your life. So when I was 16, this is not aviation-based uh, related, um, we convinced my dad that as a family, we could go on holiday to France, which you know, for people living in the south of England isn't, isn't wildly complex. And I remember at the age of 16 saying to my dad, you know, we're only going for two weeks. It's not that far away. What can possibly go wrong? The middle weekend, uh, we are in the hospital. I have broken my neck, sliced a quarter of the way through my spinal cord between C3 and C4, which usually is fatal. Um, my mother was a radiographer specializing in spinal injuries at the time. She'd looked at the x-rays. She came over to the bed where I was uh, still breathing and talking at this point. And, uh, I said, you know, how bad is it? And she said, I've got guys in my hospital who will never breathe on their own again, who've done less damage than you have. Okay, what's the prognosis? And my mother said to me, if you survive tonight, it will be a miracle. So, okay, mom, you know, don't sugar the pill, don't hold back. Wow. So oh, they get me off onto the ward and um, every 15 minutes, and bear in mind, I was 16 at the time. So this beautiful French nurse was possibly the most beautiful human being I had ever seen. And I was in a very altered state inside my head because of the pain and, and everything else that was going on. So it just felt to me like this angel, every 15 minutes, she would come, she would take all my vitals. This is uh, 1984. So it was before there were Wi-Fi connected uh, blood pressure and, and pulse machines. And um, about three o'clock in the morning, she was look, looking uh, in my face and she was using the little pen light in my eyes to see whether my pupils were changing size. 
And all of a sudden I saw her facial expression change because she'd done the little test and my pupils hadn't contracted when the light was uh, shone in my eye. And she asked me something and I realized at that point that I couldn't move uh, and I couldn't even blink. So my pupils weren't responding to light. I couldn't blink. I couldn't move anything. It just felt like I'd got pins and needles over the whole surface of my body, my eyeballs, everything just felt like it was pins and needles. They did a whole pile of tests, none of which I could feel. I mean, they were literally sticking pins in my chest to see if I would respond. And there was nothing because I wasn't feeling anything and I couldn't move anything. So a few minutes later, the room is full of people, machines that go ping, my parents. And I listened to the doctor telling my parents, I'm terribly sorry, Mr. and Mrs. Morris, your son is brain dead. And oh. I'm lying there fully conscious. I could see, I just couldn't move my eyes. I could hear, but I could not move anything. Now, both my parents worked in the health service. And as a family, we were all very, or are all very pro-organ donation. So I then listened to my dad discussing organ donation, my heart, my lungs, my kidneys, with the medical team. And you know, part of my brain is thinking, well, that's, yeah, because you think I'm dead, except no, because I'm not. And, and there was this realization in my head that I was going to die watching somebody cut my heart out of my chest, um, which wasn't cool. And that was a really challenging night to be a 16-year-old, to come to terms with the fact that you're going to die in the next, however, you know, when, they, when they find a tissue match. Because right now, I was keeping my heart perfectly preserved. I was, as far as they were concerned, I was the perfect donor. You know, everything was still being oxygenated. Everything was still being cared for. It just, I wasn't there. And um, so the nurse was sitting on the bed holding my hand, but I didn't know that because I couldn't see it or feel it. And finally, after a couple of hours, I managed to move my pinky. And she said, he moved and everybody went, no, 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 we've done all the tests, you know, he's brain dead. And I was managing to just move my pinky up and down. And then very slowly over the next few hours, everything came back. And what they think had happened was I'd done so much damage to my spinal cord that it was trying to rewire itself around the damage. And like, you know, if you're trying to rewire a telephone exchange, you don't want people making phone calls. Basically, my brain and my spinal cord had shut me out of my body while it worked out what was still working. And I've been incredibly lucky because um, most of, you know, it, it took me nine months with a collar with bolts holding my head on and physiotherapy to, to get back to the point where I was able to run around and, and do most things normally. And it probably took me about four years to recover fully from that. Did that change your life or influence oh, your thinking? Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. It's, so my life is now very much not live now and hang the consequences, but, but live for joy, live for value, live for service, live for what you can do because you never know when it's going to stop. You never know when, when something horrific is going to happen to you. That was a, it was a crazy accident. If I'd been more careful, it wouldn't have happened. But actually, given the game we were playing at the time, you know, it, it was just unfortunate. 
the the thing now is to live every minute for me to to live and a question that I ask my students now is, you know, when somebody's writing your funeral, what three things do you want them to say about you and how you lived your life? Mm. And that's a question I ask myself every day is, is what is the spirit that I leave in the world? So you mentioned uh, Michael Light Crash is one of, uh, one of the joys in my life. Uh, my grandfather, who was a hero of the Second World War, he flew uh, Lancaster bombers, which were a very British uh, heavy bomber during the Second World War. Uh, one day, a Spitfire flew over the house. I was nine years old. And my grandfather pointed up at this iconic aircraft with the amazing sound of the 12-cylinder uh, Merlin engine. And he said, that's nothing. I used to fly four of those at the same time. And so as a nine-year-old looking up at my hero grandfather, so what are you talking about? And he described to me how the Lancaster bomber was four Merlin engines, um, and uh, his job as the pilot was to basically try and coax them to flying in the same direction because it was all held together with tape and paper and, and string. So that was the beginning of my introduction to the idea of flight being something that was amazing. So it's been a goal of mine my whole life ever since to get my pilot's license. He died and left me a small sum of money, which wasn't enough to get a pilot's license, but it was enough to get an ultralight license, a thing called a paramotor. So that's what I did. I could get in the sky for, for this amount of money. And um, so I've been flying that for, oh, I don't know, 15 years now. Absolutely love it. The whole thing will fold up and fit in the trunk of the car. You know, that's the You're whole aircraft. You're flying. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but... I'm flying because when I'm flying that, it's something that I largely built myself. There is no fuselage. You know, the undercarriage is your legs. The mm. yeah, it's you know, it's <laughs> it's a very very small piece of kit. If it fits in the and, trunk of the car, I can't believe it. Yeah, I've, I've yeah. never even seen one of those. So it's like a, a parachute over your head, and then a huge fan on your back with the engine behind you. And yeah, you literally you run until it takes off it's fantastic fun but if something goes wrong it it can hurt so my <laughs> right leg um is full of carbon fiber and, and titanium after a particularly interesting landing one day and um yeah. my right uh, left shoulder has remarkably little skin it's mostly scar tissue um but um yeah neither of those are going to stop me flying so last year I uh, succeeded, I achieved my childhood goal and got my full pilot's license. And um, congratulations. Yeah, yeah that you. was just last purchased. year. Yeah, yeah. So it was delayed quite a lot because of the COVID restrictions, because obviously we couldn't fly uh, here. Um, and also, I managed to uh, buy my own airplane. So my office, you know, one, one of the things I always say is you know, if you've got a dream, put yourself in the way of the dream. So don't just dream it, but put yourself somewhere that the dream can come true. So my dream was to get my pilot's license. So when I set up the Institute of Professional Celebrants, one of the things that we wanted to do was to train people to, to take ceremonies. And I needed an office because after I sort of outgrown the spare bedroom at home and my wife was getting in increasingly unhappy with the amount of stuff that I was storing around the house. 
So I was at the flying school one day and um, somebody just overheard somebody saying that the airport where the flying school was had office space to rent. So I ran straight upstairs to the airport manager and said, show me the office space. And she showed me into this office, which was exactly the size that I wanted. And it overlooked the apron at the airport, so where all the planes are parked. And um, we haggled a little bit over the price and I rented that office and that's still where the business is based. But what that meant was that if somebody canceled a flying lesson, the school could just phone me up and say, we've got an hour's flying lesson free, do you want it? I'd just run straight downstairs and take it. So that's what, you know, I put myself in the way of my dream. I put myself where the dream could come true. So my working days now, you know, I look out my office window and there are light aircraft coming and going and, and some heavier stuff. And, and then as of October the 24th last year, my airplane is parked just under my office window. Um, and so basically now, you know, if, if I want some time in the sky, which for me is immense de-stress, it's just the sky in me is, is a place of deep joy, deep, uh, almost meditation. Um, I can just go downstairs, get in my aircraft and go flying whenever I want to. And, and actually, again, that's, that's become a thing of service. You know, I've got friends who, who also suffer from depression and I'm very open with, with everybody about that. You know, in the UK, suicide is the largest single killer of men under the age of 55. And having been there myself, I'm not going to let it to happen to somebody else if I can stop and and last year i took the funerals of nine men under 55 who'd taken their own lives and uh two of those ex-service personnel who'd served in afghanistan suffering from uh, oh. ptsd yeah. and so what i do now is you know if, if i sense that a friend is struggling a bit it's like come on let's go for a fly and we'll we'll fly for an hour or two hours and just give them that sense of what it's like to be in the sky Give them the time, just the two of us in a small metal box. We can talk. We don't have to talk. We can, um, we can just enjoy the view. We can go somewhere for lunch. You know, it's that whole hundred dollar hamburger. Um, and um, <laughs> it, it, it's, I get immense satisfaction out of sharing that joy with somebody uh, and just giving them some time and attention. And oftentimes that was just enough to help them feel a little bit more grounded, feel a little bit like the world doesn't hate them. Uh, Sounds so, yeah. like it. Uh, and then that's, yeah, that's the kind of the story of it. So for me, it's you know, never give in, never, ever give in. Um, there are times when you have to give up. There are times when you, you know, when, I, when I broke my leg I, after the crash, you know, everything is on the floor, um, all in pieces. I knew my leg had gone. I, I watched it break. Well, talk and, about that because you've, you've been in these horrible accidents and you've lost businesses and gained them. You must have gained an incredible amount of wisdom and certainly made you more resilient. I think resilience, you know, it, if your heart is still beating, you can carry on. There's something you can do. You know, when, when I believed that I was when I believed that they were going to cut my heart out of my chest, that was different. But once I believed I could move something again, whatever life was going to be, you know, I may never run a, a hundred meters in 
10 seconds, well, I was never going to do that anyway. But <laughs> you know, whatever it was going to be, I was going to make the best of it. Yeah. And so, you know, losing $30 million in a day, it sucks, but it's only money. My heart was still beating. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. it um, does give you perspective, right? It does give you perspective. And I've seen people who've struggled with cancer for years or you know, all sorts of incredible disabilities or just prejudice you know, racism, sexism, people being discriminated against because of their uh, sexual orientation. I've suffered nothing like some of those people suffer daily. I at least have choice about how I respond to the situations I found myself in. And a lot of the time, actually, you know, I put myself at least partly in that situation. You know, you can't lose $30 million unless you made it in Mm -hmm. one way. Exactly. And so, I love your description of of what the celebrants do. And so what I wanted to ask you was uh, the Institute of Professional Celebrants now operates in the United States. So tell us more about the company and why you chose this as your new business. Okay. So, so when I'd been doing it myself as my full-time job for a while, more and more people were coming to me saying, will you teach us how to make your our celebrancy business successful or will he teach us how to be a celebrant in the first place and i kept saying no 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 i'm happy i'm just doing it it's fine and then finally i said so many people are asking me there there must be a reason there must be a reason why so we launched in the uk uh almost exactly three years ago as as we record this and uh, in that time we've become the largest trainer of celebrants in the uk and one of the largest uh, membership organizations in the UK. And last January, I was in San Diego with, uh, with some friends. And I just sat down and I Googled celebrant training in the US. And there are a couple of people doing it in the US, but it seems to be a, a hugely underserved market. And the entrepreneur in me just went, well, I like being in the U.S. And if you've got a business in the U.S., you've got a reason to travel to the U.S. And I've got lots of friends in the U.S. And it's, you know, it's always nice to be able to put the airfare on the business, not off on your own personal credit card. So, and, and family in the U.S. So on the plane home, I basically sat down and wrote a business plan for a, a launch of the business in the U.S. And I think you know, America has a hugely powerful church community, uh, both in politics and and family life. But more and more people don't feel connected to organized religion in the same way. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is an increase in the number of people who need something that is unique to them. So I took a a wedding for a couple of American guys, um, one from a Buddhist background, one from a Southern Baptist background, both families not entirely happy that their son was marrying another guy. Um, But the guys wanted a wedding that had elements of both heritages in it. They also wanted something a little bit pagan, uh, uh, Celtic uh, feel to it. And so I was able to write a wedding ceremony that that honored both sets of parents, that, that honored what the guys themselves believed, because neither of them had the faith that their families had that you know they're, they're not atheist in a in a 
argumentative sense, but you know, they don't have to have faith of their own. And so we were able to construct a wedding ceremony that really met them as individuals where they were in their journey of life. And both families afterwards said that was a beautiful wedding. It, it actually, they got over themselves in a sense and said, no, we recognize the love that was celebrated in this ceremony. And the two families have become friends, not just the two sons, uh, partners and i'm still, still still friends with these two guys and that's what we can do for people and so that on the one hand there's the entrepreneurial thing of i want to to i love building businesses it's just so much fun celebrants are self-employed so basically i'm helping individuals build a self-employed business for themselves they're able to stand on their own two feet bring an income in Many of them, 87% of celebrants worldwide are women over the age of 45. So it is very much a third act career. Mm -hmm. I, I think being slightly older tends to bring with it a gentleness of, of spirit and, a, and a, an approach that suits funerals especially because you, you're meeting people in a moment of incredible pain. I had a funeral for a, a gentleman. He was 94 years old. His wife... Uh, 94 they met when they were 18 years old oh. so they had been together 76 years they were married at 20 so they've been married for 74 years and I sat down with her and I said what do you want you know I went through the whole funeral planning process and she she said actually all I want to do is say a dignified goodbye to the man I have loved for a lifetime and if that doesn't bring it, if that simple phrase doesn't bring a tear to your eye, I, I don't it know just what, did. what will. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, me too. It, and it, it was the shortest funeral I have ever delivered from the coffin entering to me leaving was six minutes. And at the end, I watched her two elderly sons, I mean, 69 and 71, these two guys were, helped their mother walk up to her husband's coffin. She kissed it gently. And she came out, she put her arms around me, gave me a really tight squeeze and said, thank you, that was perfect. And if that's not job satisfaction, I don't know what is. Oh, so is. what I yeah. do is I help people build a, a living out of helping people say goodbye or say hello. Because everything a celebrant does is about love. Everything a celebrant does is based on love. We welcome children into the world. We give them their names. That's a family loving that child. We help a child grow into adulthood with a, a bar or bat mitzvah in the, or a first communion, if you're looking at it in a Jewish or a Christian sense. But what do you do when you're, you're not in a church environment? You still want a coming of age ceremony, a welcoming of that child from, from childhood into the adult community, which again is a community loving that person that child gets engaged and married. You've got the, the wedding ceremony, which is absolutely a celebration of love. There may be vow renewals, then there may be uh, other ceremonies, or wedding anniversaries that, that the couple want to celebrate as bigger events. And then they have their own children as well. And then finally, at the end of somebody's life, what do we do? We celebrate the love the community has for the person who's passed on. So. I just love having a business that's all around love. Yeah. And so that's, so that's what we do. We teach people how to help families celebrate love. Well, how, and in how, doing do you train, so, how do you train to be a celebrant? And also, are there ancient rites or 
rituals that have to be studied to be a part of this? Yes and no. So the, the training, we can do it in one of three ways. And right now in the US, um, because of the travel restrictions, apart from anything else, the only thing we can do is a pre-recorded uh, online course. But uh, we are launching a live online course. So basically it'll be delivered over Zoom or, or Google Meet or whichever technology. We've been running it here for the, in the UK for a year now, live online, and it works really, really well. Um, and we, we have up to 14 students at a time and two or three trainers. So, so the students get a really interactive uh, session. And we actually, we get them to write bits of funerals and bits of weddings and bits of baby namings through the week. And it, it's an intensive five-day course, but then with a year of ongoing study after that. So you do the intensive bit and then you can start practicing. You actually start building your business, and, but you're studying alongside that. What I'd love to do, what the real joy is to, um, to sit down with a group of people, take them somewhere beautiful to a, to a conference center or a retreat center, and then just immerse them in it. Because then for a week, we can spend all of our time learning about the rites of passage, learning about how you build a ceremony. What is the structure of a wedding ceremony or what's the structure of a funeral ceremony or, or a baby naming? And we also delve into, you know, what's the business? How much do you charge for a funeral uh -huh. or a wedding or whatever it is? And how do you start building that up and building the relationships that are going to bring in enough money to make it worthwhile? So, yeah, at the moment, it's pre-recorded uh, material in the US, but we, we will be rolling out these other things. And, and you know, as the idea becomes known, because what I've realized is actually in this sense, the UK was way ahead of, of the US. Australia was way ahead of the UK. Australia has had celebrants since the 70s. And it's, it's something which, it's an idea, I think, which, whose time has come. Because as, as US demographics change and people begin to move away from, from the church and the, the older generation who, who are steeped in the tradition of a church wedding or a church funeral, there are more and more people wanting something different. You know, why not do something totally amazing? And it doesn't matter where it is. It's about the couple. It, you know, my wife and I got married in our back garden, which is you know, this home that we've built our home together. Um, and we had just 30 guests, our closest friends of family. Um, and the ceremony was all based around uh, basically food seven hours of food um because you know, <laughs> just, wonderful yeah the yeah. whole garden was just full of food so that's you know and you asked about ancient rites there are lots of ancient rites one of, one of my favorite is the celtic hand fasting ceremony which was a a wedding ceremony that existed in in the western part of the british isles well over two thousand years ago so it predates christianity full stop um and it is literally where the couple's hands are tied together. And then what happened uh, as Christianity arrived in the UK, the, the church kind of appropriated this hand fasting ceremony. So now if you watch, um, if you dig out any royal wedding video uh, for the last, well, for as long as there have been videos, uh, videos <laughs> yeah. but actually yeah. if you go all the way back to Henry VIII and beyond, um, 
the priest will take his stole and wrap it around the couple's hands. And that is the church appropriating the pre-Christian culture of the British Isles and turning it into something that the people recognized as a marriage ceremony, but bringing it into the, uh, the, the Christian context. Mm -hmm. And that's really fascinating how, you know, and you can see this all over the world, and I'm not saying this in a critical sense, religions evolve because they absorb the culture of the local people as they as they move around as time moves around so you can go back and look at some really fascinating things uh, and see how they've where their history is but one of the things i, I love about the, the hand fasting ceremony is you tie the couple's hands together i usually do it kind of as the very last thing of the wedding ceremony and now they're stuck because their hands are tied together and there's a trick to getting out and and we let them struggle for a little while and then tell them but if they can get out um, and have their the hand fasting cord still intact, still tied. I encourage them to put it somewhere in their house, hang it um, in in a room. And in fact, if I uh, just reach across, I know your listeners won't be able to see this, uh, but just here is is a hand fasting cord that my wife and I got married with. So it's just you know it, it's nothing special particularly, just some lovely. It's um, kind of pretty. Yeah, it's yeah, like it's, a yellow it's and gold. black rope. It's like a, a braid. A braid. Yeah, it's, it's woven together. Um, and, and in a sense, that's a reverse cultural appropriation because if you, in the Bible, you know, the three-stranded cord is not easily broken. Well, here we have a three-stranded cord. Uh -huh. um, and I, so what I say to the couples is, place this somewhere in your home. And if you ever have an argument and you can't find the words to say sorry, put this on your partner's pillow and it will say the words for you that you cannot say yourself. And that's, that's idea. I think that's, that's a fabulous how, idea. That's how I end my wedding ceremonies if the couple want anything. So little things like that is what we teach. Those added extras, um, little bits of protocol within funeral. I mean, anybody could stand up and take a funeral, but but what about the protocol? Do you bow now? Do you bow later? Do you start the music now? Do you start the music later? What do you say when it's a, um, a veteran who's taken his own life because of the PTSD, because of the horrors he witnessed on the battlefield? You know, how do you celebrate that life? How do you honor that life? How do you say something to his widow and his children who are sitting there thinking, what um those they're rare but they do happen what do you say to a young mum who's just lost her second baby to stillbirth or a late miscarriage how do you celebrate that life with well, the answer is you can't you're, you're doing nothing but mourning the dreams that that went away that were dashed in the moment that exactly. the, the midwife yeah. said something had gone horribly wrong and you know having been through that myself I can, I think, help people understand how to do it for other couples. Um, and, you know, I've seen all sorts of crazy and so I could tell stories about funerals that have gone horribly wrong for all sorts of reasons all night. But that's that's uh, perhaps a time for a, a beer. Um, <laughs> but um, Well, I, I know, had Jen... something I wanted to ask you, but you already answered sure. it. But I know Mary wanted to ask you about your family. Yeah, and, and how you uh, managed to have a family and start businesses and have so many hobbies. 
and uh, be a family man at the same time. So what's sleep? <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, it's instead of sleep? That's the answer. answer. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you know, if you look at the stats, um, I don't know what it's like there in the States, but here in the UK, the average is that people watch something like four or five hours of TV a day. Especially now. Yeah. yeah. During the pandemic. So the if, if you think you spent, if, if on average there's four or five hours of TV, what could you do in four hours every day? If you had four hours every day that you did something else with, what could you do? Well, so I've got my own celebrancy business. I've got the training business now on two continents. And I'm just about to um, buy a conference center and a retreat center. So that'll be four businesses I'm running. Well, that's what I'm doing with four hours a day that I don't spend watching TV. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and really, is there or that sleeping. much on TV? And or sleeping. Secretly, yeah. we know you don't really sleep. Yeah, no, I'm, <laughs> we can I'm, tell. I'm, <laughs> we can so tell. I, I, I think it's, it's, it's it choose what you do with your time. Even though I was running an internet security business that was all over the world, my sons knew when they were small that if it was sports day at school or if it was a school play at school, I would be there. And if it was their birthday, I would be there. And my youngest son, who's now 23 years old, he still talks about the time that on the Friday night, his dad traveled for nine hours all the way across Europe so that on the Saturday morning when it was his birthday, he would wake up and I was there and we had his birthday and I put him to bed that night and I got back on an airplane and I flew back across Europe to Moldova and carried on. But he knew that I would be there for his birthday. Oh. Um, And so for me, those promises were unbreakable. I, I, I did. I missed one school play. I missed one school play, but that was, you, you choose to make the promises and you choose to break promises. You know, very few people, you might break a promise because a plane got canceled or something like that. Well, you had a choice whether you got the last, you booked the last flight or whether you booked the penultimate flight, which then gave you some, some leeway. Mm-hmm. We choose what we do from the moment we get up to the moment we go to bed. And I think too many of us live a life where it kind of drifts. We, we get to midlife. I mean, I'm the wrong side of 50. And I see so many of my friends that I was at university with, they, they left university, they got a job in a big corporate, they've taken the promotions, and they've got a nice house in a nice suburb and a nice car. And yet inside they're dying because they didn't choose this life. They just evolved into this life of quiet desperation. Mm. And that's something that I've never been able to, to, to live with myself if I let myself just drift. So I think for people, you know, if you're sitting there thinking, I'm stuck in a rut, I'm stuck in this place that I can't move forwards from there is always choice it may just be slightly unpalatable or it might be scary but actually scary is are you really going to get eaten by a lion i mean fear our fear response is is built out of us being prey on the the plains of africa Mm -hmm. 
there is very little we do in our daily lives now where sudden death for most of us where sudden death comes out of the bushes in the form of a lion's teeth for most of us the most dangerous we thing we do is play call of duty for four hours in a you know in the middle of the night on the computer on you know, the xbox or whatever <laughs> yeah it, it, and yeah that actually what that's done is it's furred up your arteries and it's harmed your heart it, you haven't actually been in any real danger so you know to, to talk about where do I find the time, I make the time to do the things that I love. And I've constructed a life where you know, tomorrow I've got two or three meetings. If the weather's nice, I'll probably get a couple of hours flying in. And you know, then, okay, I might work in the evening to, okay. to you know, get everything done. But I choose what I want to do and when I want to do it. That, that's and, a wonderful maxim, basically. Choose your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, we get up in the morning, what's the first thing we do? We reach for our phone and we start doom scrolling on Facebook and it becomes a habit. Yeah. The brain is an incredibly energy hungry piece of equipment. It, you know, it, it's stuck up here on the top of our heads so that the cooling can happen apart from anything else. And it, it lowers its energy consumption by building habits because if it can do something by habit, it doesn't have to think about it. So it's using less energy. So you've you, you got a friend who used to smoke and actually they're not missing the nicotine anymore. What they're missing is that action of finishing a meal and reaching for the packet of cigarettes and lighting up. That's the habit. It's not the addiction to the nicotine anymore. It's the addiction to the habit. The brain just wants to do what it's always or what it's been doing for mm -hmm. the last 20, 30 years. And so, so much of our behavior, wake up, reach for phone, spend half an hour scrolling on Facebook. You know, all of a sudden, your whole morning's gone. And what have you done productive? You've mm -hmm. liked somebody's cat photo. Well, break that <laughs> habit. Or, <laughs> yeah. you know, do something more interesting. Uh, you know, and, and I have so many people who say, you know, oh, my God, yeah, was it hard to learn to fly when you're over 50? Yeah, it took me longer than it would have done when I was 20. But it got my brain really working. And you know, the joy, um, last Friday... Yeah, you know, I've got this 1968 airplane. She's almost as old as I am. This beautiful old lady of the sky and um, immaculately maintained by her previous owner. And she and I flew to 10,500 feet above sea level on Friday just to see whether she would. You know, 68 year old engine. Oh my goodness. You're brave. And there we were, you know, way above the clouds, beautiful view all across the south of England. My heart was singing for. Just the joy of it. And on and that what's the note, worst that can happen? <laughs> on that note, Stuart, we we're going to say thank you so much. Very, we just so enjoyed and we're inspired by having you on our podcast to tell our listeners where they can find Stuart. Uh, he's got Stuart more Stuart L Morris dot com dot com dot com and critical to the celebrant thing if you want to follow through with him on that is iopcus dot org iopcus.org the institute of professional celebrants us.org is is where iopcus.org i think it's from. been or wonderful just... having you Stuart, today you've been very inspirational and very uplifting and i i hope our listeners feel that too but i certainly do and I do too. Thank you so much. We so enjoyed it. I never think of it as special. It's just my life and I've just lived it. <laughs>
That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? (laughs) I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating $1 million in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.